got a very important message that I want to share with you today. Today, we are going to be talking about black and white. I want to share with you what I believe is God's heart for restoration in the midst of this thing that continues to flare up in our country, uh, continues to flare up every, it seems, few months. There's another incident that, that brings up old hurts and pains and things that have never truly been resolved. I believe God wants to see restoration for us and unity for us and reconciliation for us. And I want to share with you from my heart and what I truly believe is God's heart in that area. Um, I also want to turn to God's word and see what his word has to say. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10, as you're opening there, I just want to share with you a little bit about kind of where I'm at as we go into this. This, I will tell you on the front end, uh, is the heaviest I've ever felt coming into God's pulpit. It's the heaviest I've ever felt coming into a message. I've never carried a load or a burden for a word that God placed on my heart like this one. I've also never been more convinced that I was speaking exactly what I was supposed to be than with this message. So I'm going to ask you for two things as we go into this. Actually, I'm going to ask you for three. First thing I would ask you is this. Grab a, a notepad, paper, take notes. I believe that God wants to speak to all of us. Secondly, I would ask you to stay with me. Um, I'm going to say some things today that for some of us are going to be very uncomfortable. For some of us might be flat out offensive. For some of you, you may get angry with me. You may decide that I'm not the person that you want speaking into your life after this. And if that's the decision that you make, if you can pray about that and you feel at peace with that, that's between you and God. But I'm going to ask, don't let the discomfort of some of these things that I say cause you to close the phone or the app or to move on. Hear me out. Give me 30 minutes, 40 minutes maybe, to unpack what God would say to us today. Uh, and come to it with an open mind and an open heart. Um, lastly, I would ask you this, if you would be so courageous. If you're on a social media platform, would you share this? Would you just hit that share button and let others hear it? Because I believe not only does City Church need to hear this message, I believe this is a message for the American church. I believe this is something that all of us need to hear. And I know many of us have friends who are followers of Jesus uh, who are on our social platform. So whether that's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, God forbid, TikTok, which I know nothing about, uh, grab that share button. I don't even know if you can share something on TikTok, but whatever. Uh, you just do whatever you can do uh, to help us get this message out, and I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. Luke chapter 10. Excuse me, I want to say something else before we get to Luke. Um, this week, Obviously, I don't need to rehash the, the events surrounding the death of George Floyd. Everybody knows what's happened. Everybody knows about the riots. Everybody knows the protests. Um, everybody probably has seen the video or at least seen pictures from the video of George Floyd lying on the ground with a police officer's foot on his neck, or knee on his neck, excuse me. Um, and all that's come out of that. I want you to know that this more than any event that we've seen before along these lines, this one has, has broken me. This one has ripped me open. Not just the events 
of what happened to Mr. Floyd, though those were horrendous and awful and heartbreaking. But the response that I've seen from a lot of people who I love, who love Jesus, who look like me, that I think are turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to what's really going on. This week, my wife and I, one night, I don't remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday, I think it might have been Thursday, but anyway, one night this week, um, we grabbed our three kids, we have a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a four-month-old, and one by one, we laid hands on them, and we prayed over them, and we rebuked the spirit of racism. We rebuked anything getting handed down to them from us that doesn't look like Jesus. We rebuked the idea that they would grow up and be blind to injustice or deaf to the cries of the hurting. We prayed over all three of them that they would fight for what's right, that they would fight for justice, that they would not be infected with this disease of racism that seems to continue to being handed down in our nation. You see, the Bible says that the sins of the father will be visited upon the sons. And so I know how easy it is to say, look, well, I never owned slaves. Thank you. I thought you were 170 years old. Obviously, you never owned slaves, right? Obviously, you weren't a part of that. I wasn't a part of that. I get how easy it is to say, well, I didn't do these things. But biblically, if we believe the Bible, the sins of previous generations are visited upon the next generations. And what I believe is going to continue to happen is that sin is going to continue to get pressed down and passed down to future generations until a generation rises up to own it. Until a generation rises up to say, yes, I'm a part of this. No, I maybe don't hate people of another color. No, I maybe didn't own people of another race. But I've contributed to this. I've turned my back on this. I've been a part of the problem. And now it's time to fix it. And when God raises up a generation, a church, that will own our part in this, that's when God can move in and bring the healing, the unity, and the restoration that I believe he so desperately wants to bring. But I truly believe we're going to have to play our part. So with that being said, Luke chapter 10, Jesus has a conversation, a very famous conversation. There's a teacher of religious law, a Jew, who comes to him with a question. And it says, starting in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pretty good question, right? Question that all of us hopefully have asked and wrestled with at some point in time. How do I spend eternity with Jesus? And so Jesus asked with the question, as he so often does in verse 26, he says, well, you're an expert in the law. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And I think it's so interesting, the two commands that this teacher chooses to recite. You see, as an expert in the law, he would have the law memorized backwards and front. He would know everything written in the books of the law, and yet he distills the law down to two things, and it's interesting because Jesus, in the book of Matthew, distills the law down to these same two things. My guess is this guy had actually heard Jesus speak before. And was reciting, he was giving Jesus the answer that he wanted. That's my guess, that's my theory, I don't know exactly. But I think it's really interesting how he responds. Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. That's why we worship, right? 
That's why we do this. That's the essence of Christianity is that the Lord loves us. We love him because he first loved us, and we're called to love him with everything, not just to love him with Sunday mornings, not just to love him a little bit, but with all that we are, that we would be all in for him. He's not asking for us to be perfect. He is asking for all of us that we would give him everything. And so that's the first, Jesus says in Matthew, the first and the greatest commandment. But then Jesus says the second is like it. The religious leader here in Luke 10, 27 says, and love your neighbor as yourself. That, that this command is on the same level as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, right? That we need to love God with everything and we need to love others the same. So look at verse 28. It says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So Jesus says, all right, that's all you got to do. Just, just live out those two commands. Easier said than done, right? Uh, verse 29, look at what he says. Or excuse me, look at what it says. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. If there are five biblical words penned 2,000 years ago, that I think best explain where America is and why America is where America is right now, it is these. But he wanted to justify himself. When discussions of race come up, so often we want to deflect, we want to justify, we want to explain, rather than hearing what's actually hurting the other person. It says he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, if i got to love my neighbor as myself, I'm going to need a list of who all these people are that I need to love, right? Like, give me the mailing list. Give me some addresses. How big is this radius around my house? How many people do I have to love? And then I'll decide if it's worth it. So Jesus replies famously with one of his greatest parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm not going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan because I think most of us are probably very familiar with it. I will summarize it quickly for us just to, to, for the sake of time. He tells this story about this person who's out on a journey and the person gets mugged. He gets robbed and the, the robber who jumped him leaves him on the side of the road to die. The robber leaves and this person sits here bleeding, hurting, perhaps unconscious, not going to make it. Three people walk by. The first is a priest, the highest level of Jewish faith, the person who is most looked up to, the person who should reflect the heart of God the most. Side note, pastors, the New Testament version of priests, we get stuff wrong all the time too. So it's easy to sit here and point at fingers at this priest and say, you should have got it. Man, I've got hypocrisy in my own life, and so I, I, I get it. But the priest does the wrong thing, right? The priest looks the other way and keeps moving. Then a Levite, a teacher of religious law, somebody who, who actually serves in the temple, he comes and he sees this guy and he says, nope, he runs to the other side of the road. And then third, last but not least, comes the Samaritan. In fact, Jesus calls him a despised Samaritan. You see, a Samaritan was a person of a little different ethnicity than a Jew, they were somebody who, who was a, a different, they looked a little bit different. They had a little different DNA, and there was a massive rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other. And so Jesus, what is he doing? He's answering the question, who is my neighbor? 
In answering the question, who is my neighbor, he chooses the hero of the story to be somebody who doesn't look like the guy who is asking the question. I think that's massively significant. So the Samaritan, as you know, he comes and he rescues the guy and he picks him up and he takes him to a place where he can get medical attention and he pays out of his own pocket for the medical care and he tells the guy, hey, next time I'm in town, if it goes beyond this, I'll take care of the rest. He, he makes sure that the man gets the help that he needs. And so Jesus says, which one of these was a neighbor in this situation, verse 36, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. If we're going to live out the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, the one that is on the same level as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, we got to love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus says, your neighbor... Is the dude that doesn't look like you. Your neighbor is the one who doesn't come from the same background you come from. Your neighbor is the one who doesn't worship in the same way that you worship. That's the one I'm calling you to love just as you love yourself. He's not saying don't love people who look like you. He's not saying to hate other people who are like you. He's saying that's probably going to come easy and it's going to come natural. But if you want to be like me, if you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to know what heaven is like, heaven is a place where we love our neighbor as our Self and your neighbor is the one that doesn't look like you. That's Jesus' response to the question of who is my neighbor. So I want to share with you today five things that I believe God is calling us to do in this question of black and white. Five things that I believe have to happen if we are going to see God's heart for restoration actually take place. Jesus, in teaching his disciples how to pray, he tells them to pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And I know the illustration looks funny because I've got this scary splint on my hand. I apologize. I had surgery last week Uh, in the recovery process. But he says, let my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, he wants earth to look like heaven. And his kingdom comes in the form of the church. It's supposed to start with us. It spreads through us. We are the agent for heaven to come to earth. So there's five things I believe in this area that we have to do if we are going to see heaven come down, if we are going to see God's heart for restoration truly begin to take place in our generation. The first one is this. We have to wake up. We have to wake up. Way back in January of 2020, if you can remember that far back to those optimistic, positive days when we thought this was going to be the best year ever, and God was going to do something awesome in all of our lives, and we were going to take 2020 before we had any idea how awful this year might look, we did a 21-day fast to prepare for some things. And as we fasted, we discovered and we felt The word that God had for City Church for 2020 was awakening. That God wants us to wake up to some things. We were actually in the middle of a series on awakening when COVID-19 hit and we had to begin to disperse and no longer have our meetings together and our gatherings in place. And I'm so grateful that we are close to being able to gather again. I miss you guys. I miss your faces. I miss talking to you. I miss seeing you. 
But I believe as wrong as we may have been about what 2020 would look like, I believe we were absolutely right that God's word for our church is awakening. And when it comes to racism, when it comes to this divide, when it comes to this thing that constantly flares up time and time and time again, church, it is time for us to wake up. What do I mean? Number one, we got to wake up to the problem. Instead of deflecting, instead of pretending that everything's okay, and man, this is just something that the media wants to flare up, and there really isn't any racism in America, it's only very, very few. We make these excuses and these justifications all the time. We got to wake up to the reality that this is a problem. We got to wake up to history. You see, history, if we'll actually study it, teaches us that black people in our country have been mistreated not just through slavery. Not just in the civil rights era, although those things had massive atrocities. We can look at the Reconstruction era. And man, I've, I've been studying this for about the past year. And the horrible things that were done as, as black people were actually enfranchised, as they actually got the right to vote for the first time, and the right to run for office for the first time, and the right to be free for the first time. The terrible, horrific things that were done by many state governments and local governments in our country to hold them down, to push them back, to, to, to take away and strip away the rights that have been fought so hard for. There is a history here that is deeply painful. There is some stuff that has been done that is tragic and awful. I'm not saying America is a terrible place. I'm grateful that I was born in America. I'm grateful for this nation. It can simultaneously be true that this is the greatest nation on earth, and it is also a very broken and messed up nation because this is a broken world. And so both of those things can be true. We can recognize and be grateful for the great things about America, but we can also recognize the brokenness in our country. And I believe we need to wake up to those realities. We need to wake up to the reality that this isn't just an other's problem, this is an all of us problem. The American church has been infected by this disease just as much as so many other things and places have been. Let me illustrate that for you. In 1845, a new denomination was formed in America that would go on to become the largest evangelical denomination. A denomination that I'm grateful for, a denomination that's made an impact in my life as well as the lives of many others. That denomination is the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention was formed in 1845 because there were missionaries who were receiving pushback and, and being told that they didn't need to do this anymore because they owned slaves. And the SBC was formed in 1845 to be able to support and send missionaries who were slave owners. Rather than confronting the issue of slavery, it was formed to empower slave owners in the church. Greatest American evangelical denomination birthed in deceit, birthed supporting a lie, supporting the oppression of people, birthed in a horrible and tragic way. Unless you think I'm picking on the SBC I want to say this in their defense. They have taken great measures in the past few years to own this, to repent for this. I am proud of Southern Baptist leadership for the way that they have acknowledged their past and their history and owned up to it. But it's not just them. The Assemblies of God, 
Watch, I'm a credentialed minister of the assemblies. Our church is affiliated with the assemblies of God. In fact, this building that we're broadcasting in right now is a gift to us from the assemblies of God. I'm very grateful for the AG. I am a legacy of the assemblies of God. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was an assemblies of God pastor. He pioneered multiple assemblies churches. I'm so thankful for that legacy that I get to live in. But the Assemblies of God was formed in 1914 because in the early 1900s, there was a a revival, a movement that broke out in Los Angeles, the city that right now is perhaps the most broken of all of our cities. The rioting last night in L.A. went to unreal levels. Massive issues between police and the protesters. Los Angeles in the early 1900s was the home of a place called Azusa Street. And on Azusa Street, there was an African-American minister named William Seymour who started a revival. God used to start a revival where they began seeking God for restoration of Pentecost, of what they read about in Acts chapter 2. They believed that God could send his Holy Spirit today, that it wasn't just something from 2,000 years ago, but something that God wanted to do now. And they began praying and seeking God. And as they did, God's spirit descended and they were filled with his spirit and baptized with his spirit and given the gift of speaking in tongues and other spiritual gifts. And they saw healings and miracles and wonders. And God did something amazing on Azusa Street. And from that, a a movement began to break out. We call it the Pentecostal Renewal. And this Pentecostal Renewal begins to break out. And God's doing amazing things. And in 1914, the, the, the center of the Pentecostal renewal was the Church of God in Christ, centered right here in Memphis, Tennessee. And in 1914, there was a group of about 300 white pastors and lay people who met in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And they decided they had issues with Kojic, which was primarily African American. And they started the white version of Kojic, the Assemblies of God. And I'm sure there was fault on both sides, and I'm sure there was theological error, and we could give a lot of justifications for what happened. But I believe with all my heart, God wanted the Pentecostal renewal to be a moment where his church unified, to be a moment where his church came together, to be an opportunity where, man, we could get this thing right, and we missed it. And I'm not here to point fingers at the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not here to point fingers at the Assemblies of God. Both of those organizations have made wonderful impacts on my life. I believe they're the two greatest mission-sending organizations in the world. I'm grateful for their legacy. I'm here to say this. Sin affects everything. It affects everything, and we can't deny the fact that sin touches the justice system, that it touches our policing system, that it touches even our churches. As the people of God who understand this devastating impact of sin, we should be the most willing to understand that things can get out of whack, that things can get off, that there can be injustice. We should be the most receptive to that and the most responsive that let's get these things fixed. But so often, we're the ones who are the loudest to say, no, everything's okay. And I believe that sin touches everything. It's even touched our churches. And if it's touched our churches, then it's probably touched us. You see, the sin of racism, I believe, is perhaps the greatest demonic stronghold in America. I believe it's the thing that's had maybe the greatest 
impact of stealing the glory of God in our nation of anything that we have seen. If anything can, can, can rise up and take away from what God has done in our country, this is it. And its impact extends into our generation. We have to wake up. We have to realize and acknowledge the reality. Why would you bring this stuff up, Pastor? You're just participating in, in the media's agenda. You're just giving in to this left-wing agenda. You're just giving in to this agenda. Can I say this lovingly and gently but firmly? we got to quit filtering things through these agendas that we assume all these other groups have, and we got to start filtering things through the agenda of Jesus Christ. And the agenda of Jesus Christ is reconciliation. The agenda of Jesus Christ is restoration. The agenda of Jesus is justice. And instead of thinking that, hey, this stuff is all happening to support some other agenda, let's live for the agenda that we were created for. Let's participate in the greatest agenda. When did we begin to subject the, the agenda of Jesus to the lens of all these agendas around us? Let's live for the only agenda that matters. Sin touches everything, and it's touched us. You see, we have a vision here at City Church to be a church that looks like heaven. I think it's an awesome statement. I remember when God gave me that statement. It's something that I've held on to for a very long time. It's something I've preached many times, and I'm grateful for that vision. I believe it's the correct vision and the proper vision. But here's what I felt like God told me this week. We'll never be the church that looks like heaven until we become the church that acts like heaven. See, heaven does not turn a blind eye to injustice. Heaven does not turn a deaf ear to the cries of the hurting. Heaven runs to the broken. It runs to injustice, and it steps in to bring restoration. And if we don't do those things, we will never look like heaven, church. Sunday morning, now, right now, it's a little different because nobody can come to church in most of our country. But Sunday morning in America is the most segregated time in our week. Why? Because of mistakes like the formation of the SBC. Because of mistakes like the split from the Assemblies of God and the Church of God in Christ. Because time and again, when the church has had the opportunity to be the agent of God's agenda to bring racial reconciliation, we've looked the other way, we've gone the other way, we've settled for what's most comfortable for us instead of doing what's uncomfortable and it needs to stop. We need to be the, gen the, the generation to put an end to all this. We need to be the generation to rise up and to wake up. So the first thing we need to do is to wake up to the reality of injustice. The second thing we do is we got to pray up. we got to pray up, church. Once we wake up to that this is a problem that isn't just from the 1800s or just, isn't just from the 1960s, it isn't just from black and white photography, but this is a problem that is prevalent in our generation today now we got to pray. And when I say we got to pray, we don't need to just pray for restoration, although I think that's important, but I think that comes later. Our job is not right now to pray that we can help fix the problem. The job right now is to ask, what is my part of the problem? How have I contributed to this? What if this is in me? You see, I think one of the biggest mistakes that's been made that has made it easy for us to deflect from this is racism has oftentimes been defined is hatred. And it's easy for us to say, oh, I don't hate anybody of another race. 
I don't hate people of another color. It's easy for us to say, I've, I've got black friends. I've got a mixed niece. She's welcome in my home. I can't be racist. And so we have this example of how we've treated somebody who looks differently the right way. And so since we have that example, that means we can't have any of this in us. And so can I say that racism is not just hatred, church? Of course, hatred is part of it. But it's not just hatred. Racism can look like prejudice, where we just have prejudgments that we make about someone because of the way that they look. Racism can just be preference, where, man, we just prefer people who are like us. We're more comfortable around people who, who, who we share more things in common with. And that is natural. I'm not putting you down for feeling that way. But the reality is when we allow that to live in us, we are naturally going to treat people in ways that isn't like how Jesus treats them. Jesus treats us all the same. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. And so we got to wake up, but then we got to pray up. God, what's in me? The reality is I found a lot more of this stuff in me than I would like to admit. The reality is I've found a lot more guilt in my own life. I've never openly hated anybody of another color. But have I had prejudgments and prejudices and preferences that don't look like Jesus? Absolutely, I have. And I've had to repent. I've had to speak over my kids that this would not get passed down to them. Church, we got to pray up. we got to ask God's Holy Spirit to reveal this to us. By the way, today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day that we remember 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit of God fell and filled his people and came to live with us. He was no longer distant, but now he is near forever. It is an amazing day to celebrate. We got to pray, Holy Spirit, since you live in me, I need to hear from you. I need you to show me what of this is inside of me so that we'll stop deflecting, we'll stop looking somewhere else, we'll stop justifying ourselves and actually deal with this once and for all. Because remember, sin touches everything and the sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons. We shouldn't be surprised that this is evident in our generation until we deal with it. That's going to be the case. And it could get passed on for many, many more generations or it can end. That decision is up to us. So we got to pray up. You can put point 2A if you're taking notes. we got to own up. Once we've prayed up and we've seen it, we got to own up for it. Okay, God, I've done this. God, forgive me. And that may mean we may need to own up, maybe even beyond God. We may need to go repent to some people. We may need to repent to some coworkers, to some friends, to some enemies, right? We may need to go repent to some people that we have mistreated. But we need to own up to our part in the problem. So let's pray up. Let's own up. Number three, let's listen up. One thing that we're bad at, and when I say we, I mean really all of us, uh, but in this context, uh, the white evangelical Christian. One thing that we're bad at, myself probably especially, is speaking before we listen. Something happens, I have to have an opinion about it right now. Uh, and that's, I, I speak first and think later in many situations. Um, and the book of James tells us in James 1.19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. God's vision for us is that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I never applied that verse to the context of racial reconciliation 
until a few years ago, we had a prayer event, and I, or actually it was a Sunday morning, uh, and I invited my friend Darius Watkins to lead us in prayer. And Darius, who's getting married today, shout out to you, sir, congratulations. Darius broke this verse out. And he said, this is what I think we need to do. We need to be slow to speak. We need to be quick to listen. Church, we're not good at listening. We're good at shouting at the world. We're good at telling everybody how things need to be. We're not good at listening. And as the white evangelical, can I tell you, we got to get a lot better at listening. I've sat down with multiple African-American friends, people that I trust, people who love Jesus, people that I know want the best for the kingdom of God, and I've asked them to share me their experiences. Tell me what's happened in regards to police, in regards to the justice system, in regards to church. Many of them have pretty much the exact same stories. Good people, godly people. Stories that would break your heart to hear how they've been mistreated, to hear what's happened to their family member, to hear what they've gone through, what they've had said about them, what they've seen and heard. The answers break my heart. This week, I reached out to about 15 African-American friends, many who are in ministry, some who I know for years uh, that go back to high school, some who I've known for much less than that, but, but people that I trust, I reached out to each of them and I asked them two things. I asked them, number one, to be praying for my message today because I had a heaviness on this that I haven't experienced before. I asked them, number two, if there's anything you've ever wanted a white pastor to tell a predominantly white congregation, and I'm glad we're not all white. I know you're not all white out there. I'm not trying to say we are, but let's be real, most of us are. It's just the reality where we're at right now on our progress towards becoming a church that looks like heaven. So what would, what would you want that pastor to say? Some of their answers were heartbreaking. Some of this, the simple things that they asked. Uh, some of their answers were really encouraging. I mean, we want the church to know we believe in you. We believe in restoration. We believe it's getting better. Man, they had some very positive and encouraging answers too. But one of the things that was probably one of the most common themes through their responses, we just want people to listen. We just want to be heard. We just feel like every time we bring up injustice, we bring up a problem, we bring up something that hurts us immediately, people want to change the subject. When somebody says black lives matter, we are not saying nobody else matters. We're just saying many times it feels like we don't. And we want people to know we matter. And as the church, as the people of God, when somebody says black lives matter, our first response should be amen. Hallelujah. Absolutely black lives matter. Why? Because Jesus died for black lives. Because black lives are created in the image of God. That should be our first response. Our first response should not be, oh, well, all lives matter. Oh, well, white lives matter. Nobody's saying they don't. And I've been guilty of this, guys. I'm not sitting up here preaching down to you. I've done this myself. But when somebody says black lives matter, that's a cry from a hurting place, a place where somebody feels like we've been marginalized and ignored, and we just need you to know and affirm that we matter. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we should absolutely be able to do that. So we got to listen. we got to quit bringing in our perspective and our agenda immediately, and let's just shut up for a little while and listen. Listen to the people who are hurting. Listen to their stories. I've found that the more that I've listened, the more my perspective on this has changed. The more that I've seen things that I didn't want to believe were there, 
I've started to realize they actually are. I believe we need to listen up after we pray up and we wake up. That's number three. Number four, we need to speak up. We need to speak up. James 4, or 119 says we should be quick to listen and slow to speak, but it doesn't say we should never speak. See, there is a time for us to speak. And maybe if you want to put in a 3B after we listen up, let's pray up again. Let's ask for discernment. Let's go back to God, right? It's already on the list. So this is not necessarily like one and then two and then three. And like, like hey, just scratch that one off the list. We need to keep listening. We need to keep praying. We need to keep waking up, right? Like this stuff is still going to be in us even after we first deal with it. We're going to have to repent about it again a little bit more later. It's not like just like lust, right? Like the first time I prayed for God to forgive me of lust, it wasn't like, hey, I never had another lustful thought right? Like that was in me. Racism is in us, and we're going to have to keep waking up. We're going to have to keep praying up. We're going to have to keep listening up, but then we need to speak up. We need to speak for our friends. We need to speak for those that we love. We need to speak for those who are hurting. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. What is our motivation for speaking up? Our motivation for speaking up is not so that we can be heard. Our motivation for speaking up is not so that we can virtue signal and everybody can look at us and say, oh, look, there's a white pastor who gets it, right? That's, that's the wrong heart. And if our heart is wrong in this, the restoration is not going to happen. Our heart has to be justice. Our heart has to be that this thing would get fixed, not so that somebody could be impressed with us or somebody could agree with us. That's got to have nothing to do with it. Our heart has to be the heart of God or it won't happen. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Why? See that they get justice. That's our desire. That's the goal. That's why we speak up. We have to have a voice. I told you that I asked my African-American friends what they want the white church to know, and many of them said, man, we just want you to speak up. In fact, I had one pastor friend tell me, he said, look, sure. We ain't asking you guys to protest. We're not asking you to pick up a sign. We're not asking you to go march on Bill Street. We just want our white brothers and sisters to have a voice in this and to let us know they have our back. To let us know that, that they see this and they feel this for us and that, is, that they would mourn with us as we mourn. And I don't think that's an unreasonable request, church. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing for them to ask. We gotta speak up. We gotta find our voice. So first we find our voice to, to seek justice, but there's another reason why we have to find our voice. If you read my brilliant and beautiful wife, Melody Souden. If you read her blog yesterday, she put out a blog on this very topic. And she shared an illustration from her parenting in our daughter, Alexa. So our four-year-old is very, very right-brained. She's creative. She, she loves to draw. She's artistic. She loves to sing. She loves to dance. Basically, anything that daddy isn't into, she's into, right? Like, she's, she's just the complete opposite of me, and I love absolutely everything about it. Uh, and so she loves to sing, she loves to dance, but, but she's not really confident in herself in those things. And so many times if she's singing or dancing, we're, we're watching and tuning in and probably have some big goofy daddy smile on my face, right? Uh, and she'll, she'll notice us and she'll be like, I don't want you to look at me. Uh, and it's just like, uh, and if you keep looking at her, then she'll stop singing. She'll stop dancing. And so Melody said one of the things that she started to do and she's figured out is as they've been watching Frozen, hashtag quarantine problems, right? Uh, so as they've been watching Frozen, Lexi will start singing, uh, but then she'll notice Mel a little bit watching her, and so she'll stop. So she said, so instead of just watching her, I've started singing loud. 
And as I sing loud, she knows that she can sing because my voice is going to cover hers up. And it's giving her the opportunity to find her voice. And I think that's the perfect illustration here. We need to speak up because when we speak up, it empowers somebody else to find their voice. And it empowers somebody else to say, it's okay for me to stand for this. It's okay for me to say that this is wrong. We have to get this right. To speak metaphorically, church, if you look at the, the picture of George Floyd, most of us have probably seen the video, eight and a half minutes as this officer has his knee on his neck before he dies. I don't believe that the white, predominantly white evangelical church in this metaphor is the police officer with the knee on the African-American neck. I don't believe that we openly hate African-Americans. I don't believe that we're inflicting atrocities on African-Americans, at least not on any kind of regular basis. Um, I don't believe that's who we are in that picture. I do believe far too often we're the other police officer who's standing there with his back to the situation, trying to hold off the crowd that wants to come in and fix it. Far too often we're that guy, with the back to the issue, trying to tell somebody who sees the problem, no, there's not really a problem here. And that breaks my heart. And so we've got to turn our face towards the problem and speak up about the problem. God forbid we would be that person. Let us be the one on the other side of the camera who's saying he says he can't breathe. Man, let him up. Help him. Let us be that one who is running to bring aid and help, not the one who turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to the problem. I believe that's who God would call us to be as we see these issues arise. So we got to speak up. Lastly, and I know I'm out of time, so I'll make this one real quick. We need to raise up. Number five, we need to raise up. What do I mean by that? I mean, we need to raise up our kids to be aware of their own prejudices. Raise up our kids to examine their own motivations. Raise up our kids to understand that sin touches everything, which means it will also touch them. And that they need to be aware of this, that they need to deal with it, that they can be the ones, they can be the generation that sees this thing eradicated. We need to raise up our kids to love their neighbors as themselves. And we need to teach them who their neighbor is. We need to model for them that their neighbor is not just the guy that looks like them. It's not just the girl that they go to school with, man, that their neighbor is anyone, but especially the neighbor is somebody who looks different. We need to raise them up with that perspective. Parents, I challenge you this week, have the courage after you've prayed for yourself, don't just do this for your kids first, start with you, but after you've wrestled with this on your own, go to your kids, lay hands on them. I don't care if they're four months old like Noah is, or if they just graduated and are waiting on a ceremony, um, lay hands on them if they're living in your home, and rebuke the sin of racism off their life. Break its power on their lives. Take authority and begin to do some spiritual warfare from this, with this, because the reality is this is a spiritual thing. And we can deny it, and we can ignore it, and we can deflect it, but it's spiritual. So what's the solution as we get ready to close? How do we fix this? What's the solution to black and white? Well, the solution to black and white is not gray area, right? The solution to black and white is to not go looting. It's not to go burning down buildings and destroying s small businesses, taking lives. That's not the solution. I understand the anger. I understand the hurt. I understand the bitterness. And, and I know that 
there's so much of it that I don't understand and never will be able to understand because I haven't lived those experiences. But I also know that we can't justify sin. That's not the solution. The solution to the black and white is not gray. The solution to black and white is red. It's the blood of Jesus and the words of Jesus. It's coming back to the person of Jesus. That is the solution to black and white. As my friend Jonathan Thomas says, Jesus is justice. And if we want justice for our nation, we have to point to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who will ever get us there. He's the only one who ever could. And he's the only one that, that, that understands what it truly is. So we have to follow him and follow him completely. In fact, my friend Jonathan, let me tell you about him for just a minute. Went to high school with Jonathan in North Carolina. He's an African-American pastor now. Uh, who, who this issue is so central to his heart that after the riots broke out in Ferguson, Missouri a few years ago, if you remember that whole situation, Jonathan actually took his family. He's married to, to a white girl and has mixed kids. They picked up their lives and they moved to Ferguson to the very center of this racial issue in America and said, we want to come and we want to bring healing. We want to bring restoration. He started an organization called Civil Righteousness. You may have seen me share some of his stuff from time to time. It's phenomenal. I think he has an amazing perspective on this. Well, Jonathan, after George Floyd's situation happened a few days ago, Jonathan uh, unleashed uh, a call to a 21-day Isaiah 58 fast. Isaiah 58, we'll, we'll talk about it more as we go, but essentially calls for, for a fast for justice. And so he called for a 21-day fast. He put together a packet with, with fasting and prayer and, and tips and, and all kinds of things that we can do. It actually starts today. So I know human nature, we ain't starting fasting today. Uh, that, that's just not going to work. I can't get up here and say, man, we're going to go home and not eat anything for the next 21 days. Um, I'm not going to do that because nobody's going to get on board with that. Uh, over the next couple days, we're, we're going to begin to introduce some things through our social media platforms, what we can do. How can we begin to pray for this? How can we get behind this? Uh, the 21-day fast ends June 19th. If you're familiar with June 19th, it's Juneteenth. It's the day that slaves were finally set free. Uh, a beautiful day to, to celebrate uh, in America that we would see the slaves to sin of, uh, set free from racism. Uh, I think it's a great metaphor. Uh, so you're going to be seeing some of that stuff. He's got some really practical things that we can do that I'm so glad to get on board with. I, I wish we had jumped on board a few days sooner, but uh, we're going to jump on board today. And I'm going to get that information out to you over the next couple of days. So stay tuned for some very practical things that we can do. But Jesus is justice. Today is Pentecost Sunday. The day that the Holy Spirit was poured out, and in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter proclaims the gospel, the very first sermon of the church, the, the church era. Jesus has risen to heaven. He's back with his father, and now the Spirit pours out. Peter proclaims the first sermon of the church. The church expands in one day from 120 people to over 3,000 people explosive growth. Salvation is spreading. Peter gets up and he declares, here's what you're seeing. Here's what you're hearing. If you wonder why you hear people speaking in all these tongues and all these languages, I want you to know what's happening. This is what was prophesied about in the book of Joel chapter 2. And he says in verse 17 of Acts chapter 2, he says that God says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. See, Pentecost Sunday is the day that we remember that the Holy Spirit of God is poured out on all people, all flesh. 
black people and white people, Hispanic people and Native American people and Pacific Islanders and Asians and everybody in between and every mix, that the Holy Spirit is available for all. This is the day that the church remembers that the gospel went from just for the Jews to everybody, that Jesus is for all of us. What better day for us to proclaim the heart of God for restoration and redemption. The children's song sings, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. All are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And that might be a cliche kid's song that you haven't thought about in a long, long time. But it's also true. And if Jesus loves the little children of the world, and not just the little children of the world, the middle-aged people of the world, the older people of the world, and everybody in between, if he loves red, brown, yellow, black, and white, guess what, church? We need to. We need to love them. We need to be the ones who extend mercy, just as the Good Samaritan did, that we would be the one who's a neighbor to the guy who doesn't look like me to the girl who looks differently, who was raised differently, who's from another place, who has a different kind of hair, or whatever the situation may be. All the precious in his sight. Here's what I'm asking us to do, church, as we close up our service. Normally I pray over us, and, and many times I may ask you to participate in a different way, and I'm going to ask you to participate today in a very specific way. We're going to kneel in an act of Repentance and a posture of repentance, and a recognition that this is in me, that this has affected me and infected me, and we're going to kneel in a posture of repentance. I'm going to ask you in your living room, in your bedroom, wherever you're watching this, if you're listening to the podcast, whatever it might be, those who are gathered in the auditorium, would you join me on my knees before God? We're going to seek repentance, forgiveness for our sin. We're going to own our sin, and then we're going to ask God to begin to bring restoration in our cities, and our nation, would you join me on your knees? Father God, we come to you right now. God, we're sinners. God, we've ignored, we've deflected, we've justified, just as the man, the teacher of the law in Luke 10, we, we've sought to justify ourselves for things that are unjustifiable. So God, we repent today, not just of hatred, God, we repent of prejudice. We, we repent of preferences. We repent, Father God, of, of the ways that we've mistreated people, consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally, simply because they don't look like us. God, forgive us. Forgive us for allowing this sin to infect your church, God. Your word says that judgment begins in the house of God. So God, we allow your judgment to, to speak today and to say that we've been in sin. We hear it and we receive it and we repent of it, God. We wake up to it, we own up to it, and we pray right now, God, that you would forgive us. Holy Spirit, fall on us afresh and anew with the fire of your spirit, God, to burn this stuff up inside of us. Get rid of it, God. God, that we would look like you, that we would be a church that doesn't just want to look like heaven, God, but that we'd be the church that acts like heaven. That we would reflect your heart in a culture that is broken, that is, that, that is so hurt. Father God, that is so polarized right now and, and separated. God, we ask you to bring us together and let us start in your church. God, we rebuke segregation in the church of God. God, forgive us for allowing it to get to this place. Forgive us for allowing this to be true, that the place that should be most desegregated in the world would be the most segregated. God, forgive us.
for allowing our preferences and our comfort and the things that we prefer to prevent us from being unified the way that Jesus prayed we would be one. God, forgive us. And God, as you forgive us, as you're so faithful to do, God, because you are merciful and gracious, you are patient with us, and you allow us, God, to to still be your people, even when we ignore these things, God, we thank you for that. We receive your forgiveness. God, we ask you to, to help us to walk these steps out, Father God, that we would listen to those who are hurting, God, that we would listen to those who are different than us, that we would hear their perspectives and not immediately jump in with our point of view or, or our reason why they're wrong, God, but that we would listen. God, that empower us to speak up boldly and truthfully into these situations, God, that the voice of the church would be the voice that the, this culture sees as the voice of restoration, the voice of redemption, Father God, that we would get this right and quit allowing those who are ungodly, who are unjust, to, to carry the banner of restoration. God, forgive us. Give us a voice. God, help us to raise up a new generation, God, a, a generation of kids who can be free from this, God, who, who can be set free, who can walk in, in the vision of the kingdom of God, God, who can walk in the heart of God towards one another. We thank you for doing these things, empowering us to do these things, God. Let us not just be moved today and then move on to something else next week. God, let us allow this to become part of our mission, part of our heart, part of our golden life, God, that we would be agents of your restoration because we know your heart is to restore so use us in that manner, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for sticking with me. I, I don't know. I know first service, they said the numbers held really strong, which we weren't sure if everybody was going to tune us out halfway through or what. Hopefully you stuck with the second service as well. Thank you for that. If you did, thank you for getting on your knees with me. If you were in a situation where for whatever reason you couldn't get on your knees, I'm going to challenge you today to do it. Man, for, unless you've got just flat-out physical, man, I'm in a situation within my back or my knees or something that that's not possible. Um, there's, there's power in posture. There, there's power in, in walking these things out in our physical body. So I'm going to encourage you, if you haven't done it yet, take some time today to do that. Um, begin with prayer. Begin with repentance as we wake up to this. Uh, and then start listening. Start having conversations with those who may see things differently than you. And let's hear why they see it differently so we can get their perspective. Um, we're going to get this done, church. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen because of one ser service. It's not going to happen in one presidential term. Right? This is going to take time. But God is going to win. We serve a God of victory. He is going to win. He is going to find a generation that will respond to his voice and get this right. And I say, why not us? Let's be that generation. Amen, church? Get signed up for drive-in service next Sunday. We'd love to see you 9, 15 a.m., 11 a.m. Bring some lawn chairs. We'll see you then. Have a great week, church.